Hey, Schlaf. Hello. Thank you again, Schlaf, for, for coming on the show today. And, and I hope it's okay if I call you by your nickname. It's, it's a pretty yeah, prolific one. Um, yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, I want to talk about a number of things. You're well known as a VC, uh, recently made the transition to coaching. Definitely want to talk about both sides of that and, and everything in between. Uh, but first, for people who are less familiar, would love to get your background. Uh, pretty interesting story. So, and I've been fortunate to hear it, but just would love to hear from your perspective, kind of the overarching story. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it at a 30,000 foot view and then we can, we can dive around and, and see where the conversation takes us. So I've been in technology for almost two decades. It's, it's, it's bizarre to even say it that, that it's been that long. I started my career at Microsoft uh, in the early 2000s, where I was part of a sort of one of these leadership rotational programs where every six months I was rotated into a new area of finance and strategy. I then spent, you know, a few more years after that program doing M&A and strategy for the Microsoft business division. I eventually wanted to move closer to family and friends. I'm originally from Boston. Uh, I always felt that everyone should do at least one year uh, a tour of duty in New York City. And so I moved to New York. I joined a startup called Massive. It was an in-video game ad network. That was a great experience. And then, you know, I had just such a unique opportunity to move home to Boston a few years later to work for the Kraft Group. They own and operate the New England Patriots. And my job there was, was multifaceted. It, it was everything from looking at venture style investments, incubating new companies, looking at acquiring uh, established businesses and, you know, everything in between. And, you know, I like to say that I think my title at the time was director of new ventures, but it was like special projects. And, and so I did that for three years. And then my wife and I, we weren't married at the time. We we initially met in New York. She and I just were really itching to get back to, to the city as much as we loved Boston. And I, I enjoyed my dream job. And, uh, you know, I joined a startup called Sticky Bits, which was a mobile barcode scanning application, one of the very first ones. So this was around 2009. And uh, it was backed by Chris Aka and First Round Capital and some other great investors and for a whole bunch of reasons, it didn't work out. And we ended up pivoting to Turntable FM. And I lived through that whole pivot, but ultimately didn't want to be in the music business long term. And so I ended up joining Lair Hippo Ventures, where I was a principal there. I was, I, I was effectively the first non-partner hire that the firm had made. And it was just such an amazing opportunity and experience. In the two plus years I was there, we made over a hundred seed stage investments, plus, you know, call it a, a dozen or so follow on investments. And that was really my first foray into VC, even though I had a little bit of a, a taste of it at the craft group. Um, the craft group was really a, a hybrid between operating investing. Whereas this was my first pure VC job which, you know, I, I, I was working 70, 80 hours a week and burning the candle on both ends and just loving it. I then had an opportunity to join RRE Ventures, which is one of the pioneering venture capital funds. 
in New York City, started by Jim Robinson and Stuart Elman. Uh, at, at the time, I was uh, really interested in seeing whether I wanted to focus on seed investing or Series A. RRE is, you know, has been a, a traditional Series A firm, so a much different style of investing than than I had been doing at at our at, at Lair. And interestingly, around that time, a few things happened. First is I got I got sober. Um, the second was, as I found meditation third, my wife started a company and this whole confluence of events ultimately led me four years later after joining the firm to, to walk in and, and quit my job. And when my partners asked me what I was going to do, I said, honestly, I don't know, but I had been thinking about coaching for a while as something I would do later in life. And because I didn't have any kids, because I was going to take a little bit of time off, I felt like it was the perfect time to go ahead and, 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 and develop that muscle. And so that was about three and a half years ago. And I, you know, I haven't looked back. And now what I'm doing is I, I kind of wear two different hats. Um, the primary, my primary day job is operating high output, which is a boutique leadership development company where I almost exclusively work with early stage founders. And so that's anyone from, you know, just getting started all the way through, call it series B, maybe series C. So call it up to like a hundred plus employees. And that's one of, one of my main uh, responsibilities and, and tasks. Um, and, and right now I'm just an army of one there. And then I, I operate a small little angel fund. And so in a given year, I'll make anywhere from call it 15 to 20 angel style investments. And then I, I guess I have one other side hustle going on, which is building out the founder library, which is a portal uh, of just, you know, a packed full of, of resources for founders, everything from blog posts and templates and presentations uh, to help them, you know, as I like to say, is um, launch, scale, and lead. So anyhow, it's, that's a mouthful, but that's effectively my path to, to what I'm doing now. Yeah, I appreciate the background. It's a, it's a great story. And uh, I like that you took the time to walk through kind of each step and sort of why you made uh, some of the moves along the way. There's certainly a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I might dig back further later, but I want to start with one of the more recent things you talked about. Uh, you walked in and, and quit your job and kind of you know, out, asked what you were going to do next. You said like, look, I don't know. Um, that's something that I can sympathize with. I did the same thing about a year ago, uh, different stage of life maybe, but walked in and quit my job after two years post-grad of, of investment banking. And uh, my boss said, you know, why are you leaving? What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. It's just kind of time to move on for me. Um, and now I'm kind of developing one day at a time, one week at a time, whatever it might be, what I'm doing now. And there's not really a great word for it. And it sounds like you're in a similar boat where, you know, you're working on high output, you're investing you're building this founder's library and just kind of following your passions in, in all of these different aspects of life. Uh, how did you kind of build the conviction to quit without a firm idea of, of what you were going to do? And then how did you develop what you were actually going to do as time went on? Yeah, well, I, I, 
I should say, I, I, I actually omitted a brief stint. So I, I, I also spent about a year and a half first as a venture partner and then a partner at Primary Ventures. So I had left RRE. I took about nine months off, and which is when I went and trained as, as a coach. And I've known Ben and Brad at Primary for a really long time. And they invited me to just join as, as a part-time venture partner. And then that eventually led to them convincing me to join full-time. And, and so I, I'd say I quit, I quit my venture, my institutional venture job twice. It, it, it took me twice to realize that that wasn't a good fit for me, that, that style of investing and, and job in general. And so the first, the first time, you know, it, I think back to the, geez, when was this? Um, this was the uh, winter of 2017. So call it January, February of 2017. My wife and I were just starting to think about starting a family and, and we're, we're getting ready for that. And we went away to New Zealand as kind of like our last big trip before we, we had a family. It was something that we always felt wanted to go. And I remember being on the road on that trip and have, because we were driving around the country for, for almost three weeks, I remember saying to her and eventually coming to the decision that I was going to make a change, uh, actually when I was driving in the South Island and it was just this moment, I wouldn't say it was, I, I just sort of had this epiphany and I had been unhappy as an institutional VC and at, at that firm for a while, it just wasn't a, like, I just felt completely out of alignment. And I remember not really knowing what I was going to go and do. Um, fortunately, I had saved up a little bit of money over the years so that I was able to take a little bit of a risk. And interestingly enough, um, I didn't go and talk to other firms. I, in addition to the coaching, I thought I was actually going to go and start my own fund. Uh, and, and I was going to go out and Ray, I even came up with a name. I put together all my pitch materials. I got a, a few million dollars of commitments from friends. And I think the idea was I was going to go pitch like, you know, and, and try to raise like a 15 to $20 million solo GP institutional fund. And I was, I was actually really, um, not that I, I, I didn't want to go and do that. I just felt so much like internal resistance. And one of the things that I really struggled with is anytime you go and raise an institutional VC fund, you're really signing up for at least a 10-year commitment because of the way that the fund cycles work. And I just asked myself, like, do I really have the conviction that this is what I want to do for at least the next 10 years and likely longer because companies are staying private longer than they did uh, in previous generations. And so it just wasn't clear to me that this is what I wanted to devote the next phase of my life to. And so that was the, the first big thing. And the second was, is I wasn't necessarily sure that I wanted to do this by myself. And frankly, I was freaked out. I, I, I wasn't necessarily really um, committed to this idea yet. And I didn't have the self-confidence. And so that was the first time I quit. And I think when I joined 
primary part of it was I was still really new into coaching. So I was just work, starting to work with a few clients, but had, hadn't really like, I didn't have the confidence that this was something I could go and do full time because I was still very much in training and had my training wheels. And then that, so that, that was the first, and so jumping into primary was perfect because it, you know, in some ways it was a, a flight to comfort and safety because I, I knew the world of institutional VC fairly well and I could hit the ground running while also like keep dipping a toe in coaching and continuing to build that muscle. But after doing the coaching for over, a, you know, call it a year and a half after I joined primary, I had finally gotten the confidence that I, and I knew that I could a go and raise a smaller fund on top of AngelList and invest. in what I like to say is like a very non-institutional way. And then the second was that I could really begin to build high output. And for me, I, 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 I honestly had no idea that A, it was going to be called high output, B, what it was going to entail. And I would be lying to you if I told you that even right now I have all the answers. Um, I'm sort of just taking it as it, as it comes. And that doesn't mean that I don't have like a vision and, and I'm planning it. But, you know, I, I ultimately decided to leave primary on a hunch. And I, I love this. this um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a quick story. There's, um, I was listening to a podcast with Jim Collins from the author of Good to Great, where he was talking about this, um, this, this metaphor that he uses of um, what he calls, um, you know, bullets and in, in, in cannons. And he said, if you have a certain amount of gunpowder on a table, and um, do do you all to, and he was talking about this in relation to decision making do you do you put all that gunpowder into into a cannon where you only really have one opportunity to hit the target or do you pack it into a few bullets sort of assess calibrate the wind and the the quality of the gun and all these things and then put it into a cannonball and i felt like when i was at primary I had been collecting all of this data where people were starting to reach out about coaching. And, and so I was able to gather a lot of data points and almost like de-risk the decision to go out on my own because I had been shooting bullets as opposed to cannons where, you know, maybe from the outside, it looks like it was this big decision that I made, but I was collecting all these data points over the course of a year and a half, even longer that ultimately gave me the courage to go and do it on my own. Now I'll, I'll, I'll stop and say one last thing. I, I think out of, I, I have the most supportive wife in the world and she's been incredibly, she was incredibly patient with me in those three years as I was like walking through the desert, trying to figure out what, what I was ultimately going to do with my life. But even when I was contemplating leaving primary, she's like the last time you were in this transition and you were just starting out on coaching, you weren't even really sure what you wanted to do. And you were stuck because of the fear and, and all these other emotions I was feeling. And I, I just, by this point, I knew myself so well that I assured her that I'm like, this time's different. I know exactly what I'm going to go do. And like, you know, that's been almost a year from now, it's almost been a year to the date and you know, I haven't looked back and I've just been sprinting. It's really interesting what you say about de-risking what seems like a huge risk to others. Really you had become comfortable with over a year plus of 
kind of working towards it and considering it and, and practicing coaching with these different people. Um, I, I sympathize with that again, because uh, my decision, some people like some of my friends are like, what are you doing? Can't just quit your job without a job. Uh, but this wasn't something that I like decided overnight. This was something that I had been thinking about for months and timed it so that like my deals were at a good point where I could leave without kind of screwing the group. I just been paid my second year bonus. My lease in New York had run up. So I actually got a one-way ticket to Italy and ended up traveling for a few months. And the reason I think I was comfortable doing that was because uh, after my freshman year of college, uh, miserable year for me, I, I ended up dropping out to start a company, uh, ended up failing with that after about a year, decided to uh, return to school and ended up being able to go to a better university because of all of it. Mm. Um, so I, I was comfortable with taking this perceived risk and realizing that really, I, I think Tim Ferriss says it well. Um, he talked in his book, Four Hour Work Week, about how a lot of things that people fear are actually a lot more reversible than they might think. So like mm. for you, I'm sure you could go back into VC if you wanted. Um, after, you know, even tomorrow, like it might not happen tomorrow, but within the next year, I'm sure you could find yourself a job within VC. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point. And the, the idea that decisions are, there are very few decisions in life that aren't reversible. Um, and I think that, like, it, I think life context and circumstances matters a lot. You know, for, for I was very fortunate that I was able to do this before I started a family with my wife. And, you know, now that I have a two-year-old, I think the, the calculus and the decision making might've been different uh, in the, given this situation, but the timing was really perfect. And even in what, what I'm starting to realize, at least with my own life and experience is that oftentimes the initial decision to, 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 to make the leap is actually more difficult than, than making the leap. And um, yeah, I've just, and, and the other thing that I should say related to, you know, irreversible decisions is that most of the decisions that I have made in the last three years have been, and, and part of it is probably because I'm a, I'm an Enneagram level seven, which is the enthusiast, but like the way that I've designed my life is actually to optimize for optionality and potential paths. And so sure I'm coaching with call it 70% of my time right now. I'm also angel investing, but this, and I'm working on founder library, but each of those paths could be its own thing. Right. And in, in a year from now, I could decide, hey, you know what? I actually want to go and do the institutional VC. I'm going to go, instead of raising $5 million for the second fund, I'm going to go raise 10 to 20, right? That, that, that's a path. I could say, you know what? I'm not going to go raise a second angel fund. I'm just going to go and exclusively focus on coaching and leadership development. That's also a likely path. Um, there's another path, which is the founder library that I'm working on actually evolves from being a side project into something that is, a, that, that, that might eventually evolve into a company. And so for me, what I'm trying to do is in some ways I'm spread incredibly thread, uh, thin 
Um, and I'm, I, I work, you know, seven days a week. So I, you know, I, I do feel like I have a tremendous amount of balance in my life because I'm not working, you know, 12, 13 hours a day. Um, but because I'm making all of these bets and that they're all symbiotic and related to each other, that I feel it, it just gives me a lot of optionality and it, it allows me to take more risk. Yeah. And another thing that's important, I think, is that all of these bets are pretty much on yourself, right? You're not depending on external people or, or anything like that. You're starting your own activities in all of these different dimensions and can kind of, um, you know, reel them in or, or push them out to the degree that you feel like focusing on them. Is that kind of right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So all these things that you have on your plate, do you think you mentioned that you don't have like a, a 10 year vision necessarily? And I certainly don't blame you. I, I like taking things short term, as we can see with kind of COVID as one example, it's like, pretty silly to, to plan, in my opinion, to plan too far out, except for the things that sort of absolutely demand it. Um, do you day by day, kind of set your focuses on on one kind of mission or another or are you do you kind of have habits that just kind of pull you forward in, in all of these different dimensions between the high output library or high, high output um consulting or, or coaching and, and then the the founder library and the investing or, or is it sort of built into a program where you you're able to allocate time to all of these different things it's a great question um so I spent a lot of time as I was leaving primary to identify my mission in, in the next phase of my life. And so right now my personal mission is, and, and it's written on my website and I, I probably, it, I, I, I get sick of my, hearing myself say it, but my mission is to, to help founders bring their boldest visions to life and evolve into extraordinary leaders. And so pretty much everything that I do has to eventually has to somehow level up to that mission. And so when I think about my coaching, the investing founder library, all of those align with that overall mission. So I think that that that's usually the first um, that's usually the first filter and I've, I've spent a lot of time with my coach. I, I work with a, an awesome coach that's he's more of a perform, uh, like a performance coach and productivity coach. His name is Chris Sparks. And I've spent a lot of time with him over the last three months. I just started working with him uh, at the end of the summer. And he is, is incredibly good at getting me to focus and really define what he and I have been calling like what's in the box. So even within those three, um, because I have so much, so many things flying at me in terms of, you know, coaching clients, new opportunities, admin, uh, you know, we, we, we've basically defined what, what's actually in my box. So what are the things that I say yes to um, versus what are the things that I punt on? And so I'm constantly looking at that list and tweaking it. And so it, it really helps me be able to focus on, on the things that um, will help me move all these three projects forward. It, it, it's not easy. And, you know, I think that the, the, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of rambling, but, you know, I think where we are heading with this is what are the habits that allow me to make progress on these three disparate projects that are all somewhat related? Yeah, and by no means do my questions need, like, you know, specific answers, whatever you're kind of inspired to, to speak about. I, I encourage you to do so, and that's really an interesting take. I think it is super valuable to take the time to define your own mission or purpose, whatever you might call it. Um, I did that myself for the first time several months ago. I don't know, if, was this the first time that you really sat down and thought, okay, what do I want to kind of drive my everyday? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it was an unintentional way to start to define what's in the box and, and what I say yes to. So for example, like I'm very deliberate about working with early stage founders, right? I've had opportunities to work with executives at larger companies and I, I've said no to them because, you know, I, I want to, I want to focus. And, and, and so, you know, I think being able to really narrow the focus down is important. And so like establishing that initial mission has been helpful, but in order to work on, you know, three different things at once, it does require a lot of focus and habits. And, and so for me, I think some of the things that I really focus on and hone is like, for one is like absolutely my meditation practice so that I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of the things that are, that are coming at me and in my inbox and how I'm feeling in a given moment. So I'm, I'm really in tune with the things that are in the opportunities and the people and the activities that are giving me energy or taking it away. And so I think meditation just overall, like to me, it's, it's the thing that's the foundation of, of this. And, and so I think that's, that's definitely the one habit that I, 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 I wouldn't say I meditate every single day, but I would say usually six or six out of seven days a week. And then the other, the other habit is really spending a lot of time um, just at the beginning of the week. And I'm not, I'm not crazy about it, honestly, but I, I always have a sense as to what I need to accomplish this week. And I try at the end of every day, and this is something that I've worked with Chris on, is at the end of every single day, I try to just quickly review my task list for the morning. And so uh, it's always very clear before I go to bed, like what are the two or three things that I need to achieve in the morning uh, so that I'm, I, I, I don't have to waste any time. I sit down at my desk and I'm ready to rock. And then th there's also another, another thing that I've uh, a habit that I've implemented recently towards the end of the summer, I actually conducted a full postmortem. I, I, I have, I have a half, I, I, it was called, I have a half blog post written and it's, um, it's the extreme makeover work edition <laughs> is the name of it. But I basically went through like the five dimensions of my work life, you know, everything from like habits and behaviors to my office and each had like a series of questions and coming out of that, I, I'm not a big believer in, you know, even though it was this like very involved question, uh, 
reflection and, and, and journaling exercise to like really get to know myself and how I work. Um, coming out of that, I really only implemented two things. And, and the, the main thing that I implemented was no meetings before 11 o'clock. And so, and that's something I've shared over Twitter, which is just basically giving myself the time and the space every morning to just sit down and, and do the things that actually need to get done that day. And if I don't get anything else done after that, then, you know, I, I at least got the, the most important things out of the way. And so that, that, that has just been such a game changer for me because when I was working in institutional venture capital, I was basically in back to back to back to back to back meetings from, from 8 a.m. to usually at night, 10 p.m. And then I would wake up and go to the gym and just do it all over again. And, and that obviously, A, wasn't super sustainable because I was ultimately getting burnt out and B I was really unable to like get, get a whole lot accomplished other than just taking lots of meetings and deploying capital. And for me, you know, I, in this phase of my life, I want to, I want to be able to create more. I want to blog. I want to launch projects like founder library. I have a bunch of other projects that I've thought about and that, that can, I think become eventually collaborations with other people. And so I think by giving myself this time and space and morning is, has been really powerful. And, and for the listeners, the way that I, I typically structure the morning is usually I give myself, we have a daughter. So from seven to eight, I'm with my family. Um, I've been intermittent fasting, so I don't, I, I t typically don't have breakfast. So I'm at my desk by usually eight ten every morning with coffee. And I usually write from call it eight fifteen to nine thirty, And then, and that can be like working on a blog post. Like for example, today I'm applying to be, uh, to be in a cohort of this coaching program that I'm excited about. And so I spent, you know, that hour working on my application, I then use 9.30 to 10.30 to work on the, the urgent and important stuff that, that absolutely needs to get done. And then I have like a 30-minute like extra slack from 10.30 to 11, which is anything that – it's just extra slack in my schedule. So I can clear out some high-priority emails. I can continue to work on whatever blog post I'm writing. It, it just gives me a lot of flexibility. And so anyhow – I would say those are the habits that are, are really critical. Um, and, and the other thing I should say is while the investing and the coaching right now is I'm largely an army of one, um, I, 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 I do get a lot of help in both of those spheres. And so I'm, I'm lucky where I have a bunch of support from uh, other friends and, and, and those that I think are, are just are, are incredibly smart, whether on the investing or the coaching side. And then on the founder library side, um, we have a, a small team of, it's, it's by no means is, is it a company, but we have a team of contributors. And so I'm working with, you know, a head of product, you know, who's a full stack developer and um, also a, you know, a head of, community and content and she you know she's she's also part-time and so anyhow it's it, it to me it's yes the habits matter but I also get a lot of support from other people in these domains 
It's interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking like, all right, like I, I want to dig more into that. And then you keep talking. I'm like, all right, that, there's something else I want to dig into. And and by the time you're done, I have like seven things. And I'm trying to keep them organized in my head a little bit. But uh, I want to start from one of the things you mentioned earlier on, which is meditation being one of the core habits and things that allows you to focus. Um, I've tried it a few times. I definitely believe, you know, that it that it can work for a lot of people and does work for a lot of people. I haven't found yet. I, I tend to turn towards it, I think, when I'm down or things are, you know, super busy or in motion for whatever reason. And I kind of feel like I need it, but I've yet to really commit to something super regular. Um, with that said, what is your practice that, that you have found to work for you and, and how did that evolve to, to what it is? Yeah, I should start out by saying that meditation isn't a panacea. Um, and it's, it's not for everybody. So I'm not, I'm not of the mindset that everybody has to do it and that it's going to, you know, solve, you know, all the world's problems. Um, it's like a, it's like a 10% happier thing, right? That was, uh, I forget who said that Dan Pink, maybe. Yeah. Dan, um, Dan, Dan Harris. Yeah. Dan, Dan Harris. Harris. Yeah. yeah. I, for me, it's, you know, it's interesting. I had, I had really, wanted to explore med but by the time I got to meditation I was I was ready for it um I had been effectively smoking uh weed every single day basically from the time I was a senior in high school till the point where I was 34 um and was definitely using it to self-medicate and I, I, I talk pretty openly about this. I've, I've written about it on my blog. And the, th the thing is, is I knew, you know, addiction runs in my family. And I knew that even though I wasn't necessarily dabbling with serious substances, that I definitely was, had the bug. Like it was very, very, very clear to me that, that I did. And so there was a moment where I had been trying to quit for like for a long time. And in, a, in this moment, I was like, I'm willing to try anything. And I went away to, um, I went away to uh, France for my, my brother-in-law's wedding. This was, I guess this was in 2014, the summer of 2014. So over six years ago. And I read the book. I, I, I stumbled on the book in the Amazon, uh, in the Kindle bookstore, um, the, the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And it just like completely knocked me on my ass because it occurred to me that, you know, I was either living in the past or living in the future. And it was very rare for me to actually like stop and, and fully be present and aware with what my experience was. And so I, I, I tore through the book and I came home and I called my friend Sydney who had a daily meditation practice. And I said, Hey, Sid, um, I know you, you, you have a, uh, you have a serious meditation practice. I would love to learn. Um, how can I, like, I, I don't know very much about it. And she said, you're never going to guess this, but a friend of mine is actually from who lives in San Francisco. She's a meditation teacher and she's actually coming to New York for the next week. And she's staying with me. Let me see if she's willing to sit with you. And so uh, one thing led to another, her friend came to New York and I sat with her for, for, uh, for about an hour, uh, hour and a half to two hours 
for, for four days in a row. And she basically taught me Vedic meditation, which is effectively transcendental meditation. It's a mantra based meditation. And it was the first time in my life where a, my mind quieted B that I was really present and C I felt when I be, I, I actually transcended very quickly into, in, you know, it's hard to describe it unless you've experienced it. But, you know, when you transcend, you start to feel like you, you, you're sort of dropping down into your consciousness and you feel this sense of like expansiveness where you're connected to something bigger than yourself. And so just given that I experienced those three things very quickly and I was looking for a solution, right? I had a strong motivation to, to, to cultivate a practice. And so, and because I'm type A, I just went all in and I started meditating twice a day for 20 minutes. And then that eventually led me, like whether I was hungover or, you know, frankly, if I was, you know, stoned, I would still, would still get my meditations in. And just through that practice of like waking up in the morning and not feeling great and being, you know, groggy, it just, and, and I had some health issues. So, you know, sitting with those health issues, like really had me confront like my own mortality and things like that. And just through that process, I was just like, yeah, I want to get sober. And about nine months later, I got sober. And then when I left RRE, I, and I, I took some time off. In addition to training to be a coach, I went and I sat in a 10-day silent uh, Vipassana retreat, which was, was the most, one of the most difficult things I've ever done, also one of the most expansive. And that was when I started to really transition from TM to Vipassana which is more of like a mindfulness based meditation. And now I practice, um, I practice Shamatha meditation, which is basically a very rigorous form of just following the breath. Um, and again, there's, there's, there's some similarities with Vipassana, but um, I would just say out of anything that I've done, meditation has, has just changed my life in so many ways. Like I think, I think back to it, it was like started meditating nine months later, quit my job. I'm oh, sorry, got sober. I eventually quit my job. I became a coach. I started my own business, you know, and now I'm here. And I, I think about that path and I, I honestly don't believe that I would have achieved and, and made these, these decisions if it weren't for the meditation, because it allowed me to actually get really quiet and start to listen to like what a, like it, it allowed me to get to like really know those voices in my head, like all those different parts. And it also allowed me to start to like ask these big questions about like, what do I really value? How do I want to spend my time? How do I want to live the rest of my life? What kind of impact do I want to have? And so, you know, I'll, I'll end there, but you know, it's been, it's been a wonderful journey. And, and to me, meditation isn't just about, you know, what happens on the cushion uh, or on my seat, but you know, when I'm out there, you know, and it, it sort of has just been such a game changer for me. 
You talked a bit about smoking weed a lot uh, from high school on forwards, uh, and I appreciate your transparency and we'll, we'll reflect it myself. Uh, I smoked starting uh, freshman, freshman year of high school summer, so pretty early, uh, and then was doing so consistently. Like I, I didn't party a whole lot. My, my high school wasn't like a big party high school. It was pretty small and people lived far from each other. Uh, went to college and started drinking a lot as well. Um, so they're doing a lot of drinking and a lot of smoking, uh, and I view them kind of differently. And I'm curious to hear your take specifically on, on smoking weed with, with alcohol. It's like, you know, it's a social thing and you go out and it's fun and everything like that, or at least when you're young, um, it it can be, uh, and it's not for everyone, obviously With, with smoking weed. I thought there was a lot more substance there where, um, I actually credit a lot of my open-mindedness and sort of calmness and general perspective to having smoked. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there are some negative aspects as well, but really I've never had any, and some people like later in life get sort of anxious smoking weed. I've never had too many negative associations with it. The reason I sort of cooled out was practically when I was heading into banking, I was like, I need to be clear headed. It's just such a, a, you know, left brain occupation that I didn't feel like it would be, it would serve me to continue on the path that I was on of smoking relatively a lot. And so mm-hmm. since then I've, I've been doing it more rarely and in moderation as, as well as drinking and things like that. Um, do you look back at smoking as something that was good and bad or neither or um, more one than the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I listen. Some of the best times in my life. I've had so many good moments, <laughs> you know, in altered states of consciousness over the years. And I don't, I don't say that in, you know, in a, um, you know, in a, in a boastful way. So, like, I, I definitely am, am not anti-substance. Um, again, like I've had some amazing moments with friends and, and things of that nature. Um, I also, for a range of reasons, I personally benefited a lot from it at times when I, at the end of the day, and I just needed to like unplug and, and start to wind down and, and even help me sleep. Um, because I've, I've, I've had anxiety over the years, what I found, though, were a few things, and again, this is just for me. Um, first was towards the end, it was giving me more anxiety than it was beca- like relieving. So I felt that the more that I used it and the older I was getting, the more that it wasn't like, I, I just didn't like the way it was making me feel. So that was, that was the first thing. The second was, um, you know, for me, I, I struggle with moderation of anything you can ask my wife. And so it's, I'm sort of like an all or nothing type of type of guy. And so for me, I have one speed and that's that that's go. And, and so it was very difficult for me to just say like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to do it in moderation because it just that that wouldn't have worked with me. And I knew myself well enough to know that I had tried moderation for for, you know, over a decade, and it just didn't work. And so, you know, overall, I, I, I actually believe that these substances can be can be used, 
in a, in a positive way. I think they, they can expand people's minds if used responsibly and, and, and creatively. It just, for me, it wasn't, it was just at a point where I wasn't getting any real benefits from it. And I ultimately decided that this was how I wanted to, to live the next phase of my life. Yeah, I think that's uh, admirable for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if by the time I catch up to you, I'm not drinking myself at the very least. It's something that I've already thought about just a couple years out of school and even when I was in it and not like seriously considered it. I didn't, you know, in college, if someone looked at me objectively and most of my friends like, yeah, we probably have the the habits of an alcoholic, but people, you know, that's college. Um, And so... I've just realized over time, it's like, what is this actually doing for me? Uh, and there's, you know, one thing which is like having at the end of the day to kind of cool off. I just finished reading uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, which even pushed me further in that direction. Of Yeah, um, it's sleep is, yeah, sleep is so critical. What, what's amazing about that, I, I haven't read the book. I listened to him on Rogan. I, I took a long, I was driving from Boston back to the city. This is almost a year ago. And I listened to that interview and it's, it's crazy how important sleep is. And I think it's, it's often the thing that's most neglected um, by lots of people, but it's, it's such a getting, getting at least seven and a half hours sleep is, is, is really, really so important. So I know we're coming up on time and I'll finish up shortly, but uh, want to continue on this path with another thing I think you mentioned you started recently, which was intermittent fasting. Uh, I've been doing 16 and eight myself for uh, really like on and off for two or three years now, but uh, very consistently for the last year on weekdays only. Um, and, and I think it's awesome. It's like you talked about some of the things that helped you out focus. Um, just taking all of, you know, the physical eating and the thinking about what you're going to eat and the making of it or picking up of it or whatever it is, you take one of those out every day and that adds up to a quite a bit of time. Um, what has your experience been with fasting and is it something that you think is going to stick around? Yeah. So I ultimately decided to try um, time restricted fasting. I follow a sit like you, a 16, eight regimen. I decided to give it a try for a few reasons. I think the first is, uh, weight, weight loss, um, which has been shown to work according to my, my, my doctor. He said that it's not any more effective than other weight loss methods, but that it's proven that it can work. So that was the first. The other was to um, like uh, rest my gut, and so to to help with gut health, and and so that I think those were the two two big reasons for giving it a try. Um, what I have found is a, a few things, and I should start by saying I'm I'm really enjoying it. Um, I find that. The first week was incredibly difficult because of the hunger pangs. Um, but now I feel as if I'm, I'm I, I no longer have it and in, or have them and that they, that, that they end up a, a lot of the hunger pangs are just mental and that over time they just go away and, and I don't even think about them. But I think in terms of the benefits, I'm sleeping much better. 
I have a lot more mental clarity. I'm not snacking as much. So I'm like a big dessert guy. And so at the end of the day, usually at nine o'clock, I would have like, you know, a bowl of ice cream or a bowl of cereal or something. And so I've basically eliminated that. And I will, will typically snack in the morning. Like if I'm going downstairs in between meetings, I might grab like a graham cracker with peanut butter or things like that. And so for me, it's just been a really easy way to eliminate food outside of, you know, to eliminate food in that, in that eight hour window where, you know, I'm, I might be snacking on things that I just don't need. And so overall, it's, it's been really solid. I quickly lost, let's see, I quickly lost almost 10 pounds in, in a month, which is probably too much. The good news is, is that I, in the last, call it 10 days, I've stayed pretty flat at 190 pounds. So I was around 200 pounds. Now I'm at about 190. I, I want to lose about five more, um, but I'm not obsessed with it. I think one other surprise with fasting was around working out where I thought that I would need to work out on a full, on like a, a full stomach. But what I'm realizing is like, if I, like last week I got a workout and in the morning and didn't eat before or afterwards. And I, I actually felt amazing. And so I think I'm, I'm just realizing that this is, it's a good, it's a good way to, to limit the calories at a meeting, but it, and, and I also am someone that loves structure. And so I, I, I like discipline in the structure around this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And on the exercise piece, I've almost come to the point where I like can't work out after I've broken the fast. I love working out on an empty stomach and it's just, it just feels a lot more like, I don't know, it's tough to describe, but you said you feel amazing. It's, it's basically probably the best way to describe it um, for, for me. And it's not every day, you know, but I just feel like running on a full stomach now. I feel like a slug. Um, but in the morning, I, I just feel like mentally clear, physically pretty sharp and it's not a panacea like you said about meditation but um i think it's a good tool for people to to try if, if they haven't yet um i know we're, we're coming up on time for real now so i want to give you the last words um really appreciate you coming on today and had a really interesting conversation didn't get to all of the uh more professional things around coaching and whatnot that uh, i, I might have liked to discuss with you but i know there's a number of other podcasts out there. I especially enjoyed listening to one. Uh, I think it's called the Patterson podcast with you. Um, oh yeah, so that was, that was fun. Yeah. And encourage people to go out and, and uh, learn more about you and listen to you. But uh, with that, uh, thank you so much Slav, for, for coming on the show today. It was awesome talking with you. Yeah. Thank, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. 